Amen. Well, it is wonderful to see you all tonight. I just want to say that occasionally because I know that there are a lot of different things you could be doing on a Sunday evening. And uh, it is wonderful to see you all back. And uh, you all might be happy to know I only have my Bible and my normal notes tonight. I do not have another whole pile of papers up here. So anyway, I have been studying and writing and teaching on the subject of the Christ life now since 2005, a little over 16 years. And whenever I bring up the topic of the Christ life, people look at me many times if they're not familiar with the term. They look at me with a glance that seems to suggest it sounds biblical, sounds good, I just have no idea what you're talking about. So if that happens to be you, and maybe I've brought it up several times, and you're like, I wish he would stop at one point and explain it. Tonight, God has heard your cry, and I am going to explain that from the very beginning. So let's remove a little bit of the mystery here. I believe this should be in your notes. The Christ life is a focused pursuit to be with God relationally, recognizing Jesus as your life, and trusting him to live his life through you. Let me say that again. The Christ life is a focused pursuit to be with God relationally, recognizing Jesus as your life and trusting him to live his life through you. Now, this idea of the Christ life, it is called different things in different circles. Uh, some people call it the exchange life or the relational life. Others refer to it as your new Christian life or grace walk or liberated living or what Watchman Nee referred to as the normal Christian life. This is what it should look like normally as people are living out their faith. Now, regardless of what you call it, you can recognize it popping up in conversation through some familiar types of statements. For example, people will say things like, Christianity is not about religion, it's about relationship. That is often a link going back into the Christ life. Others might say the goal is not to do something for God. The goal is to be with God and allow God to do something through you. That is this concept of the Christ life. It has been my experience over the years that when people begin to allow these truths to settle into their heart, it kind of opens up a freshness in their Christian life and maybe a way that they've never experienced before. There tends to be exponential growth that people walk through as God is working on deep parts of their character. The Bible comes alive in ways that they've never known before. They tap into a strength that allows them to walk through difficult and dark moments. They wake up to a new level of worship and a new appreciation for what God has done. Worship comes alive. Relationships come alive. The promises of God come alive. They start to read the Bible, and all of a sudden they're like, how have I missed? this for all of these years so for many people it is the first time when they are actually living the words of Jesus when he says whom the son has set free is free indeed so you might have already seen this specifically this morning if not at other points but I'm pretty open as a pastor I'm going to share with you what's on my heart what's on my mind sometimes that works well other times maybe not so much but I'm going to share some things, and most of the time when it comes to messages, I try to share with you what God is teaching me. And when it gets into something like the Christ life, it is an ongoing learning process. 
So when I'm sharing some stuff, it's sometimes almost like you're flying the plane while you're building it. It's like God just shared this in my quiet time yesterday. I'd like to share it with you today. So a lot of that means that sometimes I am working on refining language over the course of time. I'm working on getting the concepts from my head into my heart to be lived out through my life. So when I share some things, just know I am on the same learning path as you. When I teach these, it's not like Paul has already arrived there. No, this is 16 years of me battling it out with God and God saying, ah, no, you missed that one, Paul. Let's go back again and do it. And it's just a process, but it's truths that are found in God's word that I am so excited to be able to share with you all. So of all of the times I've taught on this particular topic, and I have taught on the Christ life a lot over the years, the number one question that comes back to me is how do you get out of the way so that God can live his life through you? Comes back again and again. So if that's maybe where you're at, then tonight I'm going to do my best to try to answer that as God has been working it into my heart. Um, I want to say again, I don't have all the answers, but I will share with you what God has shared with me over the years. I want to encourage you, go with me in your Bibles right now, Galatians chapter 2, will be in verses 20 and 21. I am speaking this evening on the subject of the Christ life. I cannot, cannot, cannot overemphasize the importance of these verses. For a person who wants to walk in the fullness of what God has in store for them, for a person who does not want to live in an area of being burdened by religion, but awakened to the wonders of relationship, to the person who feels as though many times their Christian life has become nothing more than a checklist, a to-do list of, I got to go do this, and I do this, and I do this, and you just kind of work your way down through the list, and at one point you're like, what happened to the joy of my salvation? What happened to a freshness in my walk with God? When was the last time I sat before God and God broke my heart over what breaks his? If you've wondered those things before, this is a text for you. Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this evening, may your spirit do what only your spirit can do. God, if it is up to me being able to articulate the depth and the mystery of what it looks like for you to live through us, God, I'm going to mess that up. But Lord, I know your spirit is more than able to be able to take the truths of your word and allow them to sink deep into hearts and change lives. God, we're trusting you to do that this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. We have spent uh, two weeks at this point studying the concepts of justification. And we have unpacked it, and we've defined it, and we have applied it. We have seen how it answers the question, how is a person made right with God? And today we're going to see how a person who has been made right with God 
now lives out of the overflow of that new relationship with God. As we enter the text, I want you to notice the number of references here to death and life. Death and life. In fact, this actually begins up in verse 19. So go back into verse 19 for just a moment. Notice what it says. For through the law, I died, there's that word died, to the law, so that I might live to God. Death, life. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Speaks of death. It's no longer I who live. Life. But Christ lives in me. Life. And the life which I now live, life, life, I live by faith in the Son of God, life. Verse 21, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly, death. Now it is pretty clear at this point that the Apostle Paul is saying something about how we live our life. We died to an old way of living, we came alive to a new way of living. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Hence the phrase, the Christ life. It's Christ living through me. Now, knowing that the Apostle Paul is bringing together his thoughts on justification, now we need to ask this question at this particular point. And that is, what should a justified person know about Christ living through them? And I am going to spend 80% of my time On this first statement. Here it is. The old you died with Christ on the cross. The old you died with Christ on the cross. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. Now, who has been crucified with Christ? I have been crucified. You have been crucified as a follower of Christ. Who no longer lives? I, you, no longer live. Now, pardon this zombie visual that I'm about to give you, but churches are filled with dead people walking right now. And here's what I mean by that. They're filled with people who are saved. They're born again. They're justified. The Spirit of God is indwelling them, and yet they're still living according to their old nature in Adam, and not according to their new nature in Christ. Now that comment bears a little bit of explaining. So if we miss this first phrase that the Apostle Paul is sharing, none of his other points are going to make sense. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Now, I got two questions for you. Was the Apostle Paul physically crucified with Jesus on the day Jesus was crucified? No. Second one, this is a little trickier. Was the Apostle Paul physically dead when he wrote these words? No, <laughs> he really wasn't. That, 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 not, it's not overly a deep thought right there, but I, I just want to be as clear as I can be in this. When he says, I have been crucified and it's no longer I who live, then I want to understand what that means. What does it mean when it says he was crucified and he no longer lives? Who died? Who's living in his body if it's not Paul? We understand the Apostle Paul here is not talking about physical death and physical life. He's talking about spiritual death and spiritual life. Now, once again, the gospel is what helps us understand these concepts. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Wonderful verse. 
for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've really never run into a lot of people who argue with that. They recognize their sin and they are more than capable of pointing out my sin or somebody else's sin around them. They're not going to argue with the fact that all people have sinned. Now the question has to be, what are the consequences of those sins? That is Romans chapter 6 verse 23 answers the question. The wages of sin is death. It's death. Wages are what we earn for what we've done. If you've got a job and you get a paycheck, those wages are what you've earned for the job that you have done. And God says the wages, what we have earned from a life of sin, a life of rebellion, is death. Now, when the Bible speaks of death, it is referring primarily to this concept of separation in this sense. That is, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, you'll remember God warned them about the consequences even before it happened. He said, in the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Okay, did they die physically on that day? No, they died spiritually on that day. They were divided from God relationally. There's separation. They were kicked out of the garden. Separation. Sin came between them and God. Separation. Now, how does that apply to you and I today. This is one of the best ways I've ever heard this illustrated. If your dad died before you were conceived, would you have had a possibility at life? No. If your granddad died before your dad was conceived, would your dad or you have a possibility at life? No. We, we recognize that physical death prior to conception eliminates any future possibility of life. Now, I want to take that into the spiritual realm here. When our great, 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 great grandfather, Adam, sinned, he died spiritually. Everyone born of the seed of man after him has been born spiritually dead, separated from God. His spiritual death cut off our chance at spiritual life. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says it like this. Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's one of the reasons why the virgin birth is so important. Had Jesus been born of the seed of man like everyone else, he too would have been under the curse of sin. Hey, doctrine matters. It might not seem like it's that big, but we're talking about the redemption of humanity on that piece. To break this stranglehold on humanity, God chose to start a new bloodline, so to speak, through Christ. Now watch the way the Old and the New Testament now begin to come together. According to the Bible, everyone is physically born into Adam. Adam has been referred to as the federal head, federal head of the human race. That means that he is the father figure who represents the entire human family that was born after he was created. So when a person becomes a Christian, Jesus said in John chapter 3, that person is born again. You know the terminology. Born again. Now, unfortunately, the term born again has been hijacked so that it now kind of refers to some fundamentalist, Bible-thumping, hate-everybody-in-the-world type of Christian. That is not what it means to be born again. In fact, according to Jesus, there's only one kind of Christian, the born-again kind. 
It's a part of this new birth that needs to happen. So at your first birth, you were born physically in Adam under the curse of sin. At your second birth as a Christian, you're born spiritually in Christ under the covenant of grace. So now 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. All right. So at salvation, a person transitions from being in Adam with a sin nature to being in Christ with a new nature. Your position has changed. Remember, a couple of weeks now, we've been talking about positional truth. This is a positional truth. So what does it mean in verse number 19 when Paul says, for through the law, I died to the law? Well, if you wanted to put this book next to its companion text, almost like a commentary on what he's saying through the book of Galatians, I would start over in Romans chapter 3, and I would just read all the way through Romans chapter 7. You're going to find many of your answers for what does this mean back in that section in Romans. So here's what Romans 5 helps us to understand about verse 19. It says, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. There's that fun word that we've called over. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. It goes on to say, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let's pause here. This is one of those messages you just take a bite and just nibble on it for a few moments. You just got to sit with it because if you try to link all the pieces together immediately, it's going to be overwhelming. So let's just take it bite by bite, little piece by little piece. Okay, so here's what Paul is saying. Prior to the law being given, there was still sin in this world. We can easily recognize that. All you got to do is go back and look at what it's telling us in Genesis. You find that there was sin back with Adam and Cain and Abraham. Definitely some sin going down in Sodom and Gomorrah. But when the law was given, it showed the expanse of that sin. It showed the magnitude of that sin. And it showed the specific ways that people were rebelling against God. So before the law, there was a general knowledge that sin had occurred. With the law, there is specific knowledge of exactly what types of sin have occurred. So Paul continues to explain the law in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind for apart from the law sin is dead that's that concept he's trying to convey so think of it like this the law is like dashboard lights in a car if your car makes a weird noise and all of a sudden it stalls out you have a general knowledge something is wrong general knowledge now, if your check engine light shows up, you've got a little bit more specific knowledge of what's wrong. If your fuel light shows empty, that's a little bit better scenario than the check engine light. 
Uh, but again, there's specific knowledge of what's gone wrong. So prior to the law being given, it was like driving a car without the dashboard lights connected. You knew something was wrong, you just didn't know exactly the specifics nor the extent. When the law was written, the lights came on and people could now see how far from God's glory they had actually fallen. They began to recognize the boundaries that they had been crossing along the way. They also recognized that there were certain things that until the law said, don't do it, they really weren't that focused on doing it. It's like telling a kid, don't touch that. What's the first thing that kid wants to do? They want to touch it. They want to lick it. They want to hit it. They want to throw it on the ground. Like it, the moment you set a boundary in front of a rebellious human, that person immediately wants to test the boundaries. So that's exactly what Paul was saying in this. He's like, I wouldn't have even known that coveting was an issue had the law not told me thou shalt not covet. But once it was an issue, now all of a sudden I see it, uh, it's alive in me. I, I'm watching this, this law bring out that point of sin. So here's what he's saying in verse number 19. Through the law, I died to the law. And what he means is through the law, he recognized the extent of his sin. He recognized his rebellion because it came alive. He stood condemned before a holy God. He came to the end of himself. As it says in other places, he was undone. But when you see that you've thought you've been living righteously and all of a sudden you have an awareness of not only am I not righteous, I am sinful, I am depraved, I am hurting before a holy God. When you recognize that, it sticks in the person's mind. That is exactly what the law was intended to do. It was never intended to be obeyed as a course of justification. Because even back in the Old Testament, it tells us the Old Testament saints were justified by faith, not by works, Hebrews chapter 11. The law was designed to show how holy God is, how sinful and desperate we are, how it needs to be that we come to the end of ourselves so that we look to Christ for the answer. It's intended to lead us to Christ. Look over what it says, Galatians 3.24, for just a moment. Just turn over one page in your Bible. It says, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Here it is again so that we may be justified by faith. So why is it important that Paul was crucified with Christ in verse number 20? Why, why is that such an, a key concept if we're talking about the Christ life? Once again, Romans 7 helps us answer it. The law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Therefore, my brethren... You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. So if a person is convicted of a crime, and let's say they're sentenced to death, that person dies for that crime. The debt has been paid, the person is dead. But even if, by chance, that person were to come back to life, that individual would now be guiltless in their new life because the penalty had already been dealt with in the last one. So, did the law convict the Apostle Paul of crimes? Yes. What was the penalty of those crimes? Death, separation from God. 
What did Jesus do on the cross? He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Our sin debt has now been paid in full. When he rose from the dead, he now offers eternal life to those who place faith in him. So when a person places faith in Jesus, they are born again. And listen, they're now born again under a new federal head who is now Christ. The sin of Adam is imputed to us at our physical birth. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us at our spiritual birth. Both of these are crucial in our understanding of our walk with God. This is so important that our new life is completely about Christ. Our new life is completely connected to him. So this is how it says it in scripture, Colossians 3, 4. He is our life. Not a part of it. He's your life. you, You can't just... If you're talking to Christ's life, the Christ life is not an understanding of I'm going to pigeonhole God into one hour on Sunday morning. He's either your life or he's not. And by the way, even if you try to do that, he's still your life. And oftentimes he keeps removing things out of your distracted view so that you recognize he is your life. So listen to this. He is our life. It's in him that we live and we move and we have our being, Acts 17, 28. We are so identified with Christ that we were baptized into his death, Romans 6, 3, buried with him, Romans 6, 4, united with him, Romans 6, 5, crucified with him, Romans 6, 6, died with him, Romans 6, 8, that we might live in him, Romans chapter 6, verse 8. It's him. He is our life. So to go back to the Mosaic law after being raised in Christ, to walk in newness of life, it's like walking back into the graveyard again. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. The old you died with Christ on the cross. Listen to this next statement. If you don't believe that truth, you will spend the rest of your Christian journey trying to polish up, clean up, justify and sanctify the very thing Jesus put to death. What a wasted journey ahead of you. Listen, God's not trying to make you better. He made you new. (laughs) He made you new. He's like, your life, it's all now connected to him. So that now leads into our second truth. The new you is Christ living in you. Notice how he says it, but Christ lives in me. So go back to our definition of the Christ life for just a moment. The Christ life is a focused pursuit to be with God relationally, recognizing Jesus as your life. Part of that is the identification principles that we've already covered just a moment ago out of Romans chapter 6. A second part of that is consciously recognizing Jesus as your life. It's no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. The new you is Christ living in you. It's not you living for God, it's God living through you. It's not you trying to change yourself, it is Christ living change through you. It's not you trying to discipline yourself into obedience, it's Christ living his perfect life through you. Here it is. The longer I've walked out this particular piece, 
the more, one of the most comforting small phrases I keep having come up in my quiet time. Every, every day, multiple times through the day. Here, here's the phrase that keeps coming in. God, I can't, but you can through me. Amen. Whatever the challenge that's I'm about to face, when I'm about to get onto a phone call and I, I don't know what it is that I'm supposed to be sharing, I don't know how it is that I'm supposed to encourage in some of the most difficult moments of that person's life, I go before God and I say, God, I can't, but you can through me. Do you know what I'm doing in that moment? I am recognizing the fact it's no longer I who live, and I'm submitting myself before God and saying, God, I am open as a vessel before you. Would you live your life through me? Would you share with people in a way that, that it connects with them? God, I can't do it. There is freedom in the Christ life. So how do you get out of the way for God to do his thing through you? Well, first, you've got to remember the old you is dead. The old you is dead. The old sin nature is dead. Now, you have to believe that truth. You have to reckon upon that truth. And you have to live as though that truth is absolutely fundamentally true in your life. So the commands of God, remember, are written to the life of Christ in you. Only Christ can live the Christ life. Second part, abide in your new position in Christ. To abide in Christ, it means to remain in, to stay in, to be at home in. It means to continuously depend upon him as the source of your life. It is to trust him in all areas of your life. That's a part of abiding. Whenever a person is abiding, they're allowing God to respond through them. So when temptation comes knocking at the door, let Jesus answer the door. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Here's as simple as it is. God, if I try to open this door, it's going to go bad fast. So I'm going to submit to you, and I'm going to let you address this. Here, when opportunity, the other side, when opportunity knocks at the door, let Jesus open it. How will you know what's a good idea versus a God idea if you're leaning into your own understanding at that moment? What do you do? You submit to God and say, God, I can twist an opportunity for selfish desire in a heartbeat. So God, I'm going to let you address this concept. When problems knock at the door, let Jesus answer. When sorrow, when doubt knocks at the door, let Jesus answer. Why? Because I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The new you is Christ living in you. Now, think about it like this. If the spirit of, let's say, LeBron James were to come in to reside in you, what do you think you might be able to do? You're going to play you some ball. And you're going to handle it like the king right there. Okay? If the spirit of Billy Graham were to come and reside in you, what do you think you might be able to do? Preach the gospel. Man, you're going to have you a crusade. <laughs> Just wait. The buses will wait. I mean, you're, like, like, you're going to begin to say things because that's, that's who he is. Okay, now notice what Jesus has said. He said in John 14, his spirit would not only abide with you, but would be in you. 
1 Corinthians 3.16, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So if the Spirit of Jesus is dwelling in you, what do you think you might be able to do? Live righteously. It's the Christ's life. Is it any wonder that Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The new you is Christ living in you. So here's the question I usually get at this point. If the old nature is dead, then why do I keep sinning? That's a great question. Thank you for bringing it up. Okay, here it is. Part of the problem is the mind. Part of the problem is the mind. We have to believe what God has declared. Did you know if you're believing the wrong thing, your life will naturally follow that same progression? You've got to believe what God has declared. The second part of that is what's called the flesh that is, the flesh describes the habits, the tendencies, or the traits that we picked up while living under the sin nature. While having a sin nature, we learn to rely upon ourselves and indulge our selfish desires and manipulate situations. We developed habits of sin, addictions and cravings and tendencies. All of that has been developed while living under sin nature. So think of it like this. Let's say, for example, there's been somebody with a drug addiction for 20 years and they get saved, radically saved on a Friday night. Unless God does something supernatural in that person's life on that night, they're going to wake up jonesing for a fix still on Saturday morning. Positionally, they are saved. They, they, are, they are alive in Christ. They, their, their life has been redeemed. But there have been habits and traits and tendencies that have been developed while living under the sin nature that those things are still alive and well. So what happens after that? That's the sanctification process. Have you ever noticed how much the Bible talks about renewing your mind? You have to now begin to think from a different perspective. Part of that is knowing your identity in Christ, knowing your position in Christ, believing what God has declared, and then each time you're saying, God, I'm going to need you to live that out because I'm going to mess this up. And you, you keep going. It's a sanctification process with God. So here's the next one. This new life operates by faith in the Son of God. Oh, this is probably going to be one of the hardest things. It's called hard. The concept isn't hard. It's just human nature makes it hard. Here's what it says. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Where? In the Son of God. That's where my life is. My life is faith. I'm trusting in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself up for me. So what kind of life is this? It's a life of faith. You're saved by faith. You live by faith. You walk by faith. The, the Greek verb here, live, it is in the perfect tense. It indicates a past completed action that has continuing results. So we placed faith in Christ for justification. And here it is. We continue to place faith in Christ for sanctification. Now, why do I say that's hard? Because we want to do something. We're just like... Paul, that's all nice. Give me three things to do tomorrow. We love a good to-do list. We want to check something off. But in this, it's like the life which I now live, I live by faith. I'm having to trust that he can check it off his list, and it's going to be the right list. 
Did you know you don't even know what list you need to have in your life? You're over here thinking to yourself, I need to focus on this, 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 and this. And God's like, I'm not even dealing with that part of your life. This is what I'm dealing with over here. Man, walking by faith is not, not easy. Walking by faith means you can't walk by sight. Walking by faith means you cannot lean on your own understanding. Walking by faith means everything that you've trained yourself to do back here pretty much no longer applies on that other side. Have you ever noticed how upside down the kingdom of God is? It's like when you look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the, the whole Sermon on the Mount, the constitution of the kingdom, when you look at that, the kingdom is pretty much exactly the opposite of everything that we've trained ourselves to be about. It's hard to walk by faith. But here's the joy in this. When you're walking by faith, pressure's off you. Because you're just saying, God, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know where the resources are coming from. I don't know how to have this conversation. God, I don't even know the things I need to bring up in this conversation. I don't know the parts of my own heart that need to be dealt with first. But I'm trusting that you do. And I'm just going to keep pursuing you. And I'm going to trust that you're going to work things out in a way where at the end, at the end, it will be for my good and completely for your glory. That's good living right there. So, Christ did all that he did because of love. Did you see it in the verse? It says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Our response now is to be in like kind. We don't obey out of fear. We obey because we love him. The motive behind our devotion, the motive behind our obedience is one that should be that of gratitude and love for him. It goes on to say in verse 21, we do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Have you ever thought for just a moment as to whether or not by your actions you are nullifying the grace of God in your life. If God has given you this unbelievably incredible gift, but through your actions, through desiring to, to keep the law yourself, you're actually saying, God, thank you, but no thank you. I'll still try to do it myself. We have, this is interesting, no record of Peter's reply to Paul's rebuke in this chapter. Remember, it started out with Paul coming after Peter. But you can see the impact of this letter on Peter's future letters. In First and Second Peter, there is no deviation from the gospel of grace. In fact, did you know in that letter, in First Peter, the true grace of God is the theme in every single chapter comes back to grace isn't it interesting that along the way God will kind of stop you at certain moments and he will he'll use someone he will use a book he will use a passage sometimes he'll use a worship song to stop you in your tracks and just say I want to steer you right back over here 
I want to encourage you. Sit with those truths. Ask questions in your devotional time, like, how would life be different if I really believe the old me is dead? What should my outlook be if I embrace the idea that Christ is living in me? Am I trying to polish up what Christ has already put to death? Am I using the remnants of my old life in Adam as an excuse for not fully living my new life in Christ? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we're bringing this service to a close, God, I recognize that there are so many truths. This is, this is just opening up some concepts that a lot of people have been wrestling through. God, I pray that day by day you would begin to work these truths deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts. God, may we be able to look back five years from now, ten years from now, in a greater level of joy, a greater level of freedom, a greater level of understanding, seeing you do incredible work transforming our character into the character of Christ. May we see what you're doing in that and not give up along the way. God, take the deeper truths that are sometimes hard to embrace, and God, would you massage them in day by day, little by little, so that it sinks in deep. God, we will thank you, Lord, for what you do there in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you if you would. We're going to stand. we got one final song that we're going to sing together, and then we're going to make some presentation of new members at this point. So if you all would, let's stand.